Sessions. This is the Sound on Sound podcast. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Sound on Sound podcast, brought to you by the SOS editorial team. I'm Chris Mayswright, SOS News Editor, and joining me, as ever, is Editor-in-Chief Paul White. Hello. And Technical Editor Hugh Robjohn. Hello. Coming up, we answer some burning reader questions and talk about Reverb, the subject of the main feature in the July issue of Sound on Sound magazine. But first, here's a roundup of the news. Mark of the Unicorn have released a new audio interface, the 896 Mark III. It's an update to their 896 HD, and it has the same facility to record 24-bit audio at sample rates of up to 192kHz. At lower rates, it's capable of running 28 inputs and 32 outputs simultaneously. New features in the 896 Mark III include an extra bank of ADAT optical connections compared to the old model's single bank of ADAT. Also new is onboard digital signal processing. This enables effects to be applied to inputs and outputs, and the device can also be used as a mixer without connection to a computer. It will retail for under £800 in the UK and around $1,300 in the US. Visit www.motu.com for more. British mixer manufacturers Allen & Heath have launched a new mixer designed specifically for use in the studio. Called the ZR16, it's got 16 mono inputs, each with top-of-the-range mic preamps and a full-band EQ. What makes it different is that it has an 18-in, 18-out Firewire audio interface built in, as well as ADAT optical connections that let you expand your rig. Other useful features include dedicated studio monitor sends and a built-in routable talkback mic. It costs £1,819 in the UK and $3,000 in the US. Visit allen-heath.com for more. Toontrack have updated their superior drummer software, bringing it to version 2. New features in the virtual instrument include a redesigned user interface, as well as an envelope shaper and new effects designed by UK software developers Synalxis. More information can be found at the company's website, toontrack.com. A new bundle that comprises all seven of the Sonox Oxford plugins has been announced. Sonox Elite, as it's called, contains the company's EQ, Dynamics, Inflator, Transient Modulator, Reverb, Limiter and Suppressor plugins and costs 40% less than the total retail price of the seven titles put together. Check it out at sonoxplugins.com Finally, users of ModArt's Pianotech physical modelling software piano will be pleased to hear that a free Grimaldi harpsichord add-on has been introduced. If you're a registered user, head to pianotech.com and download version 2.3 of the software to take advantage. If you're not a user, why not try out the free, time-limited demo, also available from pianotech.com. This is the Sound on Sound podcast. At the beginning of July, UK distributors Arbiter held their annual music fair, where they were showing off a variety of products from their new brands. We went along to see what was on display. Hi, I'm Brian from Arbiter. Uh, we are at our AMF show 2008 at the Belfry in Birmingham. Uh, it's our opportunity to launch a bunch of new products to dealers and the press. So what's the big news at the show then? Uh, we've got quite a few new brands that we're distributing this year. Uh, one of the, the brands everyone's talking about is Moog or Moog, as they say in America. Um, we're very, very pleased to be distributing that brand. Uh, very exciting products, the old and new, uh, from the Little Fatty, which is now on the Little Fatty 2. We've got the Voyages, the Voyager Select series, all the Mooga Fuga pedals that they do. And obviously the Moog guitar, which has uh, been quite a big hit at the show. 
When are we going to expect the Moog guitar in the UK then? Um, we believe it's going to be around September, October time, so we're really looking forward to that. Retail is £3,999. Um, we've had quite a few journalists come down to look at the guitar, and most of them have been very impressed, and actually quite a few of them want one for themselves. Great. You've also picked up some more guitar brands in the last literally few days, haven't you? Yes, we have. It's been a, a busy time at Arbiter. Um, we've got Schecter guitars, which are for the metalheads. Uh, very good quality guitars, great prices on those. Uh, we've also got Daisy Rock guitars, a, a, a range for the girls. And uh, we've added to our Italia range of guitars and basses as well, which we've got displayed in, in one of the rooms, uh, quite a large brand. We actually launched Italia this time last year at the AMF show, and that has been, uh, really has been one of the success stories of the show. Uh, we've got Baden guitars, uh, TJ Baden, that makes uh, sort of high-end acoustic guitars. And uh, last and certainly not least, Spectre basses. Uh, we've got Stuart Spectre down uh, from New York uh, to show his high-end uh, bass guitars. What about drums? Last year, Gretsch were here. Obviously, you no longer have Gretsch. Who do you have? Uh, we're quite pleased to say that as of the 1st of July, we will be distributing Premier drums um, here in the UK. Uh, very proud to be associated with Premier, being a UK brand themselves. Uh, very good range, a wide range that they've got, and very, very pleased to be distributing them. Brilliant. We'll see you next year, I hope. See you next year, Chris. This is the Sound on Sound podcast. That was Brian Borchards talking to me at the Arbiter Music Fair. For more information on Arbiter's brands, visit arbiter.co.uk. But for now, it's on with the podcast. Over to you, Hugh. Sound advice. Thanks, Chris. Remember that we regularly update our online news pages, bringing you information on the latest hardware and software on the market. If you've got a question that you want to ask us, drop an email to soundadvice at soundonsound.com. Otherwise, you can visit the forums on the SOS website, where you're more than likely to find an answer to your questions. I spotted this one on the forum. It's posted by Ronaldo Miranda from Brazil. He asks, what's the difference between AIFF and WAV files? And is there any benefit of using just AIFs on Mac and WAV files inside Windows? Both uh, AIFF files and WAV files are essentially doing the same thing. They store PCM-encoded digital audio. The difference between them is the order in which they store the data. For historical reasons, the WAV files, which were developed for Intel processors, store the data little-end first, LSB first, and the AIF files store them big-end first, MSB first. And that's really the only difference. They both contain the PCM data. They both have extra data associated with it that stores extra information, um, timing information, recording dates, all sorts of stuff. You can store pictures, um, header pictures, and all sorts of things in there. They're essentially the same thing, and all the modern formats will be able to read either of them equally well. Yeah, there's effectively no difference in sound quality. And as he says, most Mac and PC applications can read either. So will Intel Macs be better suited to WAV files then, as they're running Intel processors? That would make sense, yeah. But it's, it's a minor overhead to swap the data around, so it's not really an issue. Yeah, I don't think it really makes any difference. It just depends whether the applications uh, running on, on PCs support mainly WAVs uh, to the exclusion of AIFF files. If you have software that does that, then there may be a benefit in sticking to one or the other. But uh, in these multi-format days, everything seems to read everything. Sound advice. Martin from Fife asks, I record and mix in the same room. What can I do to stop my computer's fan noise getting on my recordings? Uh, it's always a tough one, but the first thing to do is put as much distance as possible between yourself and the computer when you're recording. And if it's uh, vocals, then something like 
an SE reflection filter or a folded duvet between you and the sound source would be quite a good thing to do. The other thing you can make sure would help a lot is to make sure that the, the noisy computer is directly in the null of the pattern of the microphone. So if you're using a cardioid mic, make sure it's directly behind the mic rather than off to one side. That's a valid point, but you also have to make sure that the sound doesn't bounce off the walls, of course. So if you can hang up some duvets or some bits of foam at the obvious reflection points just to kill any hard surfaces, you may stop sound bouncing back around to the microphone. And of course, if it's um, a PC that you have there, there are lots of quietening options that you can buy, such as insulated drive sleeves, quieter processor fans, thermostatically controlled fans. If it's a Mac, then you kind of have to live with it. We've had a lot of success with building a tunnel, haven't we, an acoustic tunnel to put the Mac in. With the old G4s, you could, because a lot of the sound came out of the, uh, the sides or the underneath of the machine. But with the new G5s and Intels, then any noise that does come out comes out through the front and the back, and that's not quite so easy to silence. What you can do is buy one of these very expensive, um, cooled, silenced boxes to put your computer in, but in reality, you'd probably be better off spending the money on an upgrade to a quieter machine. Uh, if you check out the SOS forums, you'll find that Martin Walker has written chapter and verse on quietening your PC, so that might be a good place to start. Sound advice. Joanna from Memphis asks, how can I make a realistic, vintage-sounding slapback echo? Yeah, this is the kind of thing that would have been used on Elvis records, I guess, and maybe the John Lennon records. Now, the problem with digital delay is it's quite often too clean, so that the secondary repeat, uh, which is typically 80, 90 milliseconds behind the original, gives you the right timing for a vintage slapback effect, but not the right tone. You can try one of these plugins that emulates tape echo, because with those you can roll off a little top end and introduce some distortion, some wow and flutter, which may be better. Another trick which um, I've had some success with is feeding an effect send into another room, into a little amplifier, mic up that amplifier, feed that back into your system and then feed that through a clean digital delay so that you're getting that kind of roominess as well on the slapback. You got any um, vigors on this, Hugh? No, I think you're right. The, the vintage effect was done with tape, so you've got to try and emulate tape. And, and with tape, you've got a uh, lack of high end, you've got some distortion products in there. Um, and possibly a bit more noise. So you're trying to emulate that, really. Um, getting rid of the high end's easy enough. Adding distortion's not that hard if you've got some kind of valve emulation or plug-in. Um, but sending it out to a speaker in another room and doing it that way is remarkably effective. You're right. It can be, and I think in a lot of those old recordings they may have experimented doing a similar thing with their live reverb chambers, because if you remember before plates became popular, a lot of studios would have a tile basement with a few concrete pipes in there to diffract the sound a little bit. They'd stick a loudspeaker at one end, stick a mic at the other end, and use that as their reverb. Mm, quite right. Sound advice. James Norden from California asks, how would you record a banjo? Uh, he says, I either get a woolly sound or it sounds like a sitar. Do you reckon, Hugh? Well, I wouldn't record a banjo. <laughs> no. Yeah, the, well, well, most people say that the definition of perfect pitch is being able to get a banjo into a river in, in one throw. <laughs> so if you want to record it underwater, which is its natural habitat, then a microphone in a tightly tied condom is a way to record underwater, apparently. Works mm. quite well. Mm, I think that the sitar effect comes from miking it too close and you, you pick up the wrong balance of harmonics from the strings. Um, it, it is a funny instrument to have to record. Um, the only time I've ever come across it is in sort of traditional jazz bands and it's always been a bit of a struggle, I have to say. Yeah, I, I think you're right. The things are inherently quite loud, so you don't have to get paranoid about spill. If you keep the mic probably two or three feet away rather than two or three inches away, you're going to do it much more justice. Yeah and treat it as you would an acoustic guitar, which is maybe screen off the sides, but put it on a reflective floor so that you get a bit of natural ambience coming up off that. In last month's issue of Sound on Sound magazine, 
Mike Senior kicked off our two-part reverb feature with an overview of reverb, what it is and how to use it, which controls to reach for first, how much to use and on which instruments. You'll find audio examples to accompany the feature on the SOS website, which you can access whether you have an electronic subscription or not. In part two of the feature, inside the August issue of the magazine, Mike looks at the techniques of some of the world's best producers. It's well worth a read, and if you don't get the paper magazine, you can check it out online on the SOS website, soundonsound.com. Reverb is one of those effects that catches out many people, as it can be used in so many ways. But why do we need it in the first place? Hugh? Well, the real reason is that studios, recording studios, are generally set up to maximise separation between sources, and you can only do that if you have a very dead-sounding studio with very few reflections. So, inherently, studios tend to be relatively unnatural-sounding spaces. So we had reverb to try and put a bit of character back in, a bit of room space back in, and just make it sound more natural and more homogenous. All right, great stuff. How do you use it, then? It depends on the on the material I'm, I'm working with, really. In my case, a lot of my stuff is... is uh, classical or choral music recorded on location so the re- reverb is natural reverb from the location usually uh, as it happens i did a piece the other day where because of the audience in, in the place i couldn't put the mics as far back as i wanted i ended up being closer than i really needed to be and the sound was drier than it should have been um, and i did find i had to add some artificial reverb to that and the challenge there was trying to get an artificial reverb that matched the real acoustic um, which i'd like to think i did reasonably well but it is a, a tricky thing to get right did you use a synthetic reverb for that or a, an impulse response convolution reverb no i used a lexicon for that synthetic reverb lexicon because hmm. it may be interesting to talk about the difference between the two types and why they exist yeah absolutely i mean the, the, the advantage of the convolution reverb is that if you've got a convolution sample of the real space the reverb is nearest damn it the real thing as well um, and there are some excellent convolution reverbs out there now of course, the downside of convolution is that you can't uh, adjust the parameters quite so freely as you can with the synthetic reverb. And also, synthetic reverb has an unnatural character, which we've come to know and love through records over the last three or four decades. And so we tend to associate that sound with a, with a certain kind of music. And, and so it would actually fit in better than a real space kind of sound. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, it varies a bit. Lexicons have a particular quality that I think people recognise now. And it's, it's not entirely natural, but it is very pleasant. Um, the TC reverbs and most of the Yamaha reverbs tend to be a little bit more mechanical, a little bit more technically accurate, if you like, but perhaps lack a little bit of character. Um, but you've got plenty of options to, to mess with them. You can vary almost every parameter at will, whereas, as you say, with convolution, you can't because it's, a, it's the sign of a real space and you just have to put up with the real space. If you've decided that you do need a reverb on more than one instrument, it's always wise to set it up on a send so that you can add different amounts of the same reverb to different instruments. Um, one of the problems that we see with some people's mixes is that they put in a different reverb unit on or reverb plug-in on every track that needs reverb and they run out of CPU overhead for a start. And you can also end up with too many conflicting kinds of reverb because... I like to think that reverb is equivalent to lighting. Uh, and if you had you know, a, a stage set, for example, that, that's lit very badly, you might have all the shadows coming from one side on one side of the stage and the other side on the other side of the stage where the shadows are maybe darker and, and shorter and the thing wouldn't look quite right. And it's, it's the same with reverb. You can, you can mix a couple of them together, but if you have one instrument in a huge booming cavernous space and another one really dry, it can sound quite odd unless you've got a good artistic reason for doing it. If I'm doing sort of poppy, rocky kind of recordings, I normally set the the desk up with four reverbs. I have a longish hall type of thing, a plate, um, an ambience, and then a, a simple echo slapbacky kind of effect. 
and, and that usually covers pretty much everything straight off. Yeah, and of course you can mix them on different sources. Quite often a vocal would sound better with maybe an ambience mix with a shorter long-tail reverb rather yeah. than all long-tail reverb or all ambience. Absolutely, yeah. I think the most important thing is those early reflections because that's what really defines the character of the, of mm. the space you're in. Um, and the last thing you want is lots of long reverbs that just clog everything up. Yeah, you need a song that has space for it. And of course that's associated with music from maybe back in the 70s when big reverb was, was popular. But now recordings tend to sound a lot drier but when you listen to them more critically you'll find out that they're using short ambience treatments quite often yeah absolutely what about trying delays well quite often delays do work instead of reverb for certain things specifically guitar solos of course it's a very nice effect when i was doing the interview concerning the making of david gilmore's last album um apparently one of the questions a lot of people would ask is what kind of reverb does the guy use and the answer is he doesn't use one at all he uses around 700 milliseconds of delay on the guitar and that's what gives that kind of soaring sound to the solos on the other hand if you listen to some old blues songs uh, you can use quite a lot of delay if you listen to the stuff that peter green did in especially the minor keys blues that he did uh, they were saturated in in reverb and it was spring reverb from the amplifier but the songs were very sparse and left space for it i think generally what what you're trying to do with most styles of music is you're trying to create the illusion of a space that the whole band are playing in so most times you really only want one kind of reverb you might apply different amounts of that reverb to different sources to give the impression they're closer or further away but most of them will share the same reverb maybe you'd have a different kind of reverb on the vocal or possibly on a snare drum or something like that as an effect but in general you just want the one and set it up as a send as, as paul says so each source on your on your mixer sends out to the same reverb different amounts and then you bring it all back into the mixer on a separate channel sound advice just to finish off can you offer some quick tips for the listeners Uh, one of my tips is uh, usually to roll off a little low end from the reverb below around 200 hertz and that stops it messing up the sound a lot Um, maybe roll off even more if you're putting overall reverb on a, a drum kit that's already been mixed or recorded with only one or two mics because there's nothing worse than excessive reverb being triggered by a kick drum but if you roll off the low end and use a fairly compact reverb that's rich in early reflections you can actually make a drum kit sound as though it's in a real room by processing the whole thing yeah, it's a good point. That was going to be one of my tips, actually, running off the bottom end, you swine. Um, the other one I'd recommend is set your balance, get everything right, put the reverb in, get it to where you think it should be, and then pull the fader back another three or four dBs. You always have too much reverb, whatever you do, and then go outside and listen outside to what it's like. Mm. But always evaluate the amount of reverb when the rest of the mix is up, because if you solo something with reverb, it always sounds that like it's got too much and then you put the rest of the mix in and it hasn't got enough and then you turn it up and then you end up with too much again which is uh, why Hugh's tip is so valuable Um, the other thing if you want to just change the sound slightly make it interesting is stick a chorus or a flanger plug in before the reverb and the reverb kind of mangles that up in a very interesting shimmery way that takes away the obvious flanging and chorus but just leaves you with a more interesting glittery kind of sound it's quite nice on sort of um, female vocals sometimes especially if they haven't got a particularly exciting voice yeah it's the kind of thing that a lot of lexicons do in in a similar sort of way part of their swirl function has that kind of effect pre-delay is a setting that most reverbs have and the idea there is to try and simulate the distance between the source and the walls the bigger the pre-delay the longer it takes a reverb to come back the bigger the illusion of the space is so that's worth playing with yeah, it also helps to separate the, the vocal, uh, in particular, from the reverb that follows it, and it can give you a little more clarity and also more of a sense of an effect so that you can get away with less of it. Yeah, that's true. Most reverbs are stereo, but you don't have to use them in stereo if you don't want to. And there's a lot of mixers out there, a lot of balance engineers, who actually specifically use mono feeds, mono returns from their reverbs, and pan a mono reverb 
either with or on the opposite side of the image to the source it goes with. Um, that, that can be a nice effect. That's a valid tip because most people would use a synthetic reverb at any rate with a mono input and a stereo output. But one of the things reverb does is dilute the sense of stereo imaging and placement because the reverb comes from everywhere. So the more reverb you, you add, the more homogenous and indistinct the sound source becomes. So, yes, yeah, sticking a, a mono reverb and panning it to the same place as the dry signal is quite a good way of nailing it into position. Yeah, works very well in surround sound as well if you're getting into surround sound mixing. Works very well. This is the Sound on Sound podcast. We've just about run out of time here on the Sound on Sound podcast. You can find more tips and techniques on the SOS website and in every issue of Sound on Sound magazine. Don't miss the September issue of the magazine, which hits the shops in August. In it, you'll find a fantastic subscribe and win competition, where you could get your hands on a bundle of Focusrite, Novation, KRK and Ableton gear. Also in the September issue, watch out for features on choosing the perfect audio interface and a fascinating article that charts the history of the Yamaha NS10 studio monitor. See you next time on the Sound on Sound podcast. Sound on Sound.